Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're reading through Patrick O'Brien's Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron canon. Ian, we're, we're sort of back after Master Commander. We're back after our big Q&A session. Bring us up to speed here. Where are we? Where are we off to today? With pleasure, Mike. We're at the beginning. We're in the early chapters here of The 13-Gun Salute. So once again, we did our long reread of book number one in the canon. Now we've skipped back to where we were. It seems like weeks ago now that we were in the regular kind of canon sequence here. We're in the 13-gun salute. Last time in chapter one, the surprise had left England early on secret mission that Stephen is embarked on to Chile and Peru, hoping for Jack's sake, that he won't endanger further his chances of being restored to the Navy list, which is in in the offing, but not a sure thing at all. He's already harmed that, we think, a little bit by criticizing the Regent's mistress in public. Jack and Stephen had therefore decided in a bit of a hurry to head off. They'd left behind a disappointed Sophie and, shock news, a pregnant Diana. Wow. The pregnancy, we think, and the fiery tempers, we think, were the effects of Stephen having kicked his laudanum habit. And Mike, chapter one, big cheer there for Team Stephen. The surprise still had all of her piratical hand-picked Shelmiston crew aboard and a few of those Orkney men, all of whom were a bit wary of the new landlubber, the purser, Mr. Standish. He'd fallen into the sea coming aboard. Stephen was upset with his bankers, was trying to find a new bank to look after his fortune. That was where we had left it, Mike, in chapter one. This week, in chapter two, Stephen's frustration with his bankers continue. The surprise eyes and chases a prize, a puzzling prize, as the new purser continues to impress, just not very favourably. We find out why it was that the universe conspired to have us redo Master and Commander before starting 13-Gun Salute as the curse of the United Irishman. Ah, because here it is, that curse once again, having haunted James Dillon, is back again to descend on Stephen. Whoa! Here we are. We've got the surprise. We're in British waters. We've got Orkneymen. We've had shanties. Praying for fair weather. How is it looking as we start this chapter? As a matter of fact, we get exactly that. We get that fair weather or the shanty. Stay tuned for the many prizes, which was included at the end of that. And in this fair weather, Jack has now sailed the surprise out to these lovely, lonely waters to pretty the ship up before turning to Portugal. You know, he he doesn't want to be kind of in the regular sea lanes. He didn't want to be interrupted by English ships, whether they're stopping and asking to see his papers. He's he's not so much worried about senior naval officers, since they all now know he's a member of parliament, likely to be restored to the list. And and he also doesn't want just their stopping to offer their, you know, congratulations and best wishes either. And he doesn't want to waste any time on unrated vessels commanded by lieutenants or master's mates who you know, <sighs> don't know enough not to stop him. So they're in these unfrequented waters well south of Ireland and in the midst of a beautiful weather. And they've stopped to do a little fishing before they really get to work touching up their piebald paintwork. Yeah. And this is all sounding quite contented and calm and bucolic, you might say, and happy. 
So at any rate, it is in Jack's point of view. And just like O'Brien often does, he switches the point of view straight away in the second uh, second little section here in this chapter. And we are back with Stephen. If we remember when the pilot came aboard off the Eddystone light in the last chapter, he brought some letters. And Stephen is reading those letters right now, waiting for Jack to wake up. Jack had stayed up until the middle watch. He had been reviewing the observations of the scientist Humboldt, whose work Jack was going to collaborate in in his voyage around the world, and making plans to take his own only, says the text, a change of wind, the cry of sail ho, or the smell of breakfast would wake him. So pretty sound sleeps there for our Jack. Stephen, and Mike, here's, here's where the heart sinks a little bit. Previous Rot. chapter... See, Stephen had kicked Laudanum. My heart sinks a little bit when we read that Stephen has been chewing cocoa leaves. I'm thinking like, dude, you know, you're, you're halfway through the canon. You've had a lot of bad experiences with, uh, with, with substances of one kind and another. Your life is good. Why, why are you descending back into drug tech? Anyway, never mind. He's chewing the cocoa leaves. He's working away in the coach section of the great cabin rather than in his own other small cabin off of the gun room. And we read that his, his sleep has not been entirely placid. He'd woken early from, as O'Brien calls it, an unusually explicit and vivid erotic dream. And Mike, I think in the past we've heard those mostly described as being dreamed by Jack Aubrey. And it's a, a little moment for us to pick up on here that Stephen's the one who's having these erotic dreams here. He's concerned that he's becoming a mere satyr or satyr, um, S-A-T-Y-R. We're going to talk about what that is in a second. And he sees this happening as the residual effects of his former laudanum habit wear off. And he thinks to himself, and again, my heart sinks here, Mike, where would I be without my coca leaves? The answer is not trapped in the 1980s. That's where. So, Mike, as, 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 as satyr or satyr, I still don't know which way to pronounce it correctly. That, that's a figure from Greek mythology. Why would Stephen be worried that he's turning into one of those? Well, it's it's interesting. It, I, I kind of went back the same thing. I could kind of remember I was getting him confused a little bit with like these pan-like creatures. But yeah. it, sure enough, a satyr is in Greek mythology. It's this lustful, drunken, really a woodland spirit uh, yeah. there and, and was often portrayed represented as a man with a horse's ears and tail and a permanent erection. So in, yeah. in these Greek paintings and, and things like that. Now, as, as we move to Roman times, the representations change from horses to goats. So they've got, you know, a man with a goat's ears, a goat's tail, a goat's legs and horns. And this is this intersection with kind of pan. Yeah. Uh, and so now we get kind of these, you know, these guys still, you know, lustful. And, and the word has come generally to mean also a man with strong sexual desires. And I'm thinking back to Molly Hart and yeah. I'm thinking, uh, you know, we, we don't want uh, to think of Stephen with horns now. He's, he's got his beautiful pregnant bride at home. No, 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 no. Oh, no. I don't, I don't want any, any reference to Stephen with horns here, but interestingly, I'm, I'm kind of reading the history of these creatures and how they've evolved over time. And in fact, these representations, when we get sort of, you know, much more modern times, get much less bawdy, much less obscene, and eventually become the current day fawns of modern fantasy and children's literature. Yeah, yeah. C.S. Lewis, the Narnia books, the Lions and Witches and Wardrobes. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Well, so... We're still not entirely sure, as we hear that Stephen's back onto the coca leaves, we're still not entirely sure what's bothering him, and we start to pick this apart as we dig through the chapter here. 
He's got some letters from his bankers. Remember the bankers that he was dissatisfied with? He was complaining about them at dinner in the last chapter, explaining all these reasons why the requests that he sent to them have not been attended to and explaining what he, Stephen, needs to sign or send or complete, you know, what bureaucracy do they need from him next in order to complete what he sees as his perfectly reasonably requested transactions. Stephen gets all naval in his in his foul mouth rant here. He calls them buggers, which is a very naval thing to call somebody that you dislike, and uh, turns to open now a package from somebody called Ashley Pratt. And Pratt is a surgeon, a fellow Royal Society member, somebody that Stephen dislikes, even though Sir Joseph Banks, the Royal Society's president, thinks really highly of Pratt. So Stephen, we learn, trusts Banks's opinions on plants and bugs much more than he trusts his judgment of people. And we have this little aside that says how Banks had countenanced William Bly, the former governor of New South Wales. And Mike, that, that that's a Bly that we know already, right? That's Bly from Mutiny on the Bounty and the and the Rum Rebellion, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this, you know, this is Stephen's way of giving us a good examples. And and in fact, in history, Banks, the, the Royal Society's president, was pretty instrumental in getting Bly, the guy, as you mentioned, who was the captain of the HMS Bounty, who was, you know, kind of thrown overboard with a with a small ship and his officers back in that big mutiny. Yeah. He gets sent to New South Wales to become governor there. There is, as you said, this rum rebellion. And even there, there's general mutiny and he's imprisoned. It's later reversed, but still there's kind of this cloud around him. So Stephen really says, you know, I, I don't like this guy. I don't like what happened in New South Wales. Now, to Bly's credit, we don't just want to completely tar and feather the guy here, even though Stephen doesn't like him. We do have to remember he did fight for Nelson at the Battle of Copenhagen. And he was the guy when Nelson pretended not to see the admiral's signal he was captaining the ship that could see both the Admiral's signal and Nelson's signal. And he, too, chose to say, yeah, we'll just follow Nelson's. Yeah, very good. And it's, it's, He's an interesting character because in, in kind of popular history, everybody knows the story of the mutiny and Bly was the bad actor in that story. Right. And he's painted as this kind of villain. And he, he certainly was. It must have been a complex character and he certainly had his moments. But he he was also in parallel. He had a successful career as a naval officer, and you know went about doing doing the king's business with some distinction in some parts of his career. So it's not like he was permanently once and always a bad egg, as you might say in the navy. Yeah, and there's some scholars who actually, in going back and looking at the logs of his ship, say this was not a guy that was punishing a lot. Was less likely to be found handing out extreme punishments and everything else seemed to be that. Now he was a guy apparently that had very strong opinions about things and yeah, pushed them very yeah, hard. Exactly. Yeah, so. yeah, but but being a pain in the ass is different from being a tyrant. And it sounds exactly. like he was, he was quite possibly a pain in the ass, but he probably wasn't a tyrant in the way that right. people describe him. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Now, back to this idea of Pratt. Pratt has sent this package to Stephen and Stephen's reflecting some more on the status and the... Uh, the worthiness of Pratt. He wouldn't trust Pratt as a surgeon with blitial aneurysm, an aneurysm in a particular blood vessel in the body, after seeing what he'd done to one particular patient. So Stephen's got a very acute memory for this guy's detailed surgical performance. However, the text says, and this is going to be important for us, he's grateful, Stephen is, for the combination of strong magnets that Pratt has sent him, designed to remove cannonball splinters from eyes. And my 
this doesn't really count so much as a spoiler because it's coming up in this chapter, but let's just say we're in diving bell territory here. Okay. Right, right. The the, the magnets are going to play a role in the story besides being an interesting curiosity in Stephen's collection here. He puts this magnetic device away, goes back on deck. He sees the officers looking over the leeward rail. And Nathaniel Martin offers his telescope to Stephen, apologizes for forgetting to say good morning. And he points out that maybe his greed is distracting him. He says greed reduces man to a brutal state. And we know, and we're going to hear some more as well, about how Nathaniel Martin, for all his man of the cloth, is, is a bit materialistic as well. Martin says the officers think the ship is a prize and the crew is sure that whatever part of her ballast is not silver is double refined gold. So this excitable piratical rumours run round the ship like wildfire already. We, we haven't even heard Jack Aubrey pronounce on it yet. No, no. But I think, you know, we've been hearing for a while now in the canon, you know, the crew is like, Jack always has secret intelligence. Yeah. Oh, there's going to be these galleons. Eventually, we're going to get these galleons and it, it always continues to come back. But it does this ship, while we haven't identified her yet, she is acting very suspiciously here. You know, she had all these, you know, her boats were out there were fishing. They're all coming back extremely quickly now. And, and the lookout says that he thinks she's French, looks French. Mm. So Jack uh, then walks over, joins Stephen and Martin and Standish, the new purser, and asks them if they've seen the snow. And he wasn't trying to laud over them at all, but he realizes that none of them knows what he means. You know, he's got kind of three real land lovers here. They're not sure mm -hmm. what he re is referring to with the snow. But then Standish kind of quickly gets his wits about him and says, oh, yes, sir. And I was thinking of going to fetch my great coat. <laughs> oh, there's snow. Let me get, yeah, make a weather joke here. Well, Pullings West and Davidge hear this and they are absolutely not impressed. It's kind of like, you know, look, look, you're the new purser. You don't know anything about anything yet. I don't care if the captain did pull you out of the ocean and save your life. You don't get familiar with the captain like that. That's no. not how we operate here. <laughs> I thought that was a kind of a cute scene there. And, and Jack, you know, being the gracious guy that he is, you know, doesn't hold their literary references that they're always whipping him with. You know, he doesn't hold his nautical references over them. He explains that a snow is, uh, you know, a, a vessel like the one they're looking at now with a trisel mast abaft the main. Yeah. They're wondering, you know, you know, what could she be? And, you know, Stephen saying, you know, well, they're fishing and, and, and Jack and everybody puts him to right saying, well, given her rigging, which is, you know, meant for her to run very fast and her five guns on each side, she's not a fisherman. You know, Jack no. says, you know, I'm pretty sure she's a recently built French privateer. Yeah. Huh. And we're back. It's funny, Mike, and, we're getting some exposition that's helping to catch readers up. Remember we said that we think that American readers would have been coming to the canon for the first time, or a, a new rather, as 13 Gun Salute was coming out. And as well as catching us up on the characters, he's kind of going back and saying, hey, these are some of the things that I like to talk about. And one of the things that I like to talk about is how funny it is when lubbers misunderstand the business of seagoing folks. And one of the things I like to use to, to illustrate my humor is puns. So we've had quite a few little signposts in this chapter, or these first two chapters already, that are reminding us of what life was like um, in the earlier parts of the canon as well. Now, another hark back to Master and Commander is the usage of sweeps aboard. Now, in Master and Commander, we had sweeps aboard the Sophie. Now we've got sweeps aboard the Surprise, sweeps out of these big oars. Jack checks with pullings to make sure that they have the sweeps aboard. There's no wind, so he thinks rowing might be the way to go. He wants to be ready if the prize should start to sweep. 
So Jack takes Stephen to breakfast while they're all kind of getting ready here. There's still no wind by dinner and they start sweeping, rowing in other words, as each watch takes turns going to dinner. I might, this must have been backbreaking. And the Sophie was a little brig. This is a, albeit a small frigate, this, this is a frigate of many hundreds of tons. And I, I can't think how, how, how severe the physical labor must have been and how they're coordinating the big looms of the oars here. The snow begins sweeping too, and we get this moment where Pullings invites Standish the Purser to take a turn at the sweeps, telling him about this old saying that when there's very hard work to be done, the gentlemen hail and draw with the mariners, meaning the officers pull on an oar along with the regular sailors. And even this kind of hard labour is told in a very upbeat way. It's a very nice moment to point out the good morale and the teamwork on board the Surprise. Everyone's pulling in unison. Eventually, the ship is making two and a half knots. The lighter snow, however, is making three knots and is pulling away. The laughter and the good feelings are starting to die away now on the Surprise. We get determination setting in. Even when they change rowers, they're working really hard to make sure they don't even lose a stroke. And Mike, the, the day is wearing on here, isn't it? Well, it is. You know, O'Brien tells us that the sun is well past its zenith and the chase now is is pretty much hauled down on the horizon. So she's really gotten away from them. But the wind starts up and the surprise can stop sweeping. So there's this huge array of sails going up and, and Standish comes on deck and he kind of looks up and it's unlike anything he's ever seen. You know, he tells Pullings, Lord, sir, what more than gothic glory, you know. And so, I, you know, hey, uh, one one point for Standish here. <laughs> he yeah. at least recognizes. And, and O'Brien has this gorgeous write-up about the light and the sails and the wind and everything. But uh, Pullings, unfortunately, says, you know, it's not going to last. Sadly, there's this big swell coming in from the southwest, and it's probably going to bring at least half a gale here. Well, the surprise had gotten the wind first and she gains a mile on the snow, but then, you know, the wind picks up on the snow and the surprise can't run as fast as usual because she's got 12 months worth of stores weighing her down. So as you were saying, yeah. you know, with the sweeps, not only is it the big frigate, you know, not, well, not, not a big, she's a frigate versus, you know, this little snow, but she's got all these stores, you know, sinking her down here. So, that weight, however, could, you know, if, if a gale does come up, that could work to her advantage here. Now, the ship, uh, as, as the seas start to rock, the ship starts to rock, and Pullings is looking at Standish and quickly escorts him over to the rail as he starts vomiting repeatedly <laughs> here. And, and finally, the crew are kind of chuckling as they, you know, kind of wait for the belt to subside just a little bit and then take him down below. So quit looking out in the midst of all this rocking here. Poor guy. You know, it, they say that there are two stages of seasickness. In stage one, you're worried that you might die. And in stage two, you're worried that you might not die. <laughs> oh, no. Ouch. I, I hear that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, this particular part of the, the coastal waters of Britain, what they call the Western approaches, is is notoriously rough. And it's a, it's a classic place to get an attack of the yips, I would say. Um, wow. Anyway, the, the gale that's been brewing that we've seen foretold by the swell comes even sooner than expected. And Stephen, who's still down below reading the French files, notices the ship's increasingly skittish motions and the loud, urgent sounds. Jack comes on in and invites him up to see the chase because now the chase is like, you know, full tilt. 
on deck then, even though they're carrying far less sail, the deck is still tipped over by 20 degrees. We have a large bow wave. And Mike, we know from reading in the past, this is the kind of sailing that Jack really relishes. Obviously, fragile newcomers like Standish have a bit of a different outlook on it. Um, Pullings reports that the chase has not altered course at all. She must be heading for the Cove of Cork or a little south. Huh. Okay. Stick a pin in Cork and southwards. Cork is in the west of Ireland. Hmm. Ooh. Okay. Stephen's surprised to see the chase right ahead, almost within gunshot. He looks at the chase through a telescope. He watches the men at her taffrail as they watch the surprise. He notes that the Snow's chase guns are smaller. They're nine pounders. And Mike, there's this real kind of earth-shaking moment here where Stephen's mind kind of snaps to attention and directs him back to a man that his telescope had just passed over. He's looking through the telescope to the figures on the deck of the snow, and he is certain that the man he's looking at now is a man named Robert Goff. Goff, we learn, had been a member of the United Irishman with Stephen, and, and therefore, I guess, Mike, by association with James Dillon. They both believed, Stephen and Goff, that Irishmen should govern Ireland and that Catholics should be emancipated. But the text says they had disagreed on just about everything else, especially Goff's desire for intervention from France. And those of us who were listening a few episodes ago when we had our great chat uh, with Paddy Cullivan, you'll remember that we talked a lot about the French interventions and the naval battles, uh, the naval battle uh, featuring Wolf Tone in 1798 and the, the other French descents onto Ireland. Stephen was against all of this. First of all, he's against violence. We're going to talk about how he's against France later on. But he's against violence. He's against importing any new kind of tyranny. He had seen the 1798 uprising put down with, as the text says, revolting cruelty and the help of swarms of informers. And Stephen has used the the label of informer as a real negative, deeply, deeply negative and dirty connotation all the way through the stories here. Right. And, And meanwhile... Goff had become more committed to France, while Stephen, in his turn, recovering from the shock of the loss of his girlfriend at around the same time, had watched the rise of this dangerous French dictatorship under Napoleon, replacing the generous and wholeheartedly republican ideals of 1789. And Mike, at, at this particular moment, then, we get this really great exposition of Stephen's perspective on France and on Bonaparte. Yeah, this is so nice. In that first chapter, we had O'Brien bringing us back up to speed again on characters and their backgrounds and who they were. And I think we're getting it here. O'Brien writes that Stephen had seen the treatment of the Catholic Church in France of the Italian sympathizers in those unfortunate regions overrun by the French and of the Catalans in his own Catalonia. And well before the end of the Revolutionary War, he had seen that this whole system of pillage and oppression, these whole series of police states must, before everything else, be brought to an end. And everything he had seen since, the subversion of countless states by brute force, the imprisonment of the Pope, the universal bad faith had confirmed this diagnosis, strengthening him in his conviction that this tyranny far more intelligent and invasive than anything that had been known must be destroyed. The freedom of Ireland and Catalonia were dependent upon its destruction. The defeat of French imperialism was a necessary condition for all the rest. 
boy, wow. I, you know, what a what a thesis on what yeah. Stephen's doing and why he's doing it. Yeah, and it's doing a really nice job here, both of you know exposition and reminding us where we've got to in the story so far with Stephen. And I think Mike, for for the first time, from my memory anyway, we're what is it, thirteen books in? I can't remember how many books in, and we've known all of this. The pieces have been there for us to see. But this is the first time we've had the whole kind of thinking logic of Stephen's position on France and why he's involved and why he's active as an intelligence agent all laid out for us here like this. Yeah. And I'm so reminded we've gotten, I think this is only the second reference to this lost girlfriend of Stephen since yeah. the opening chapter or chapters of Master and Commander. So yeah. I was kind of glad that, again, once that we're, you know, we stepped right over this multitude of books, but here we are stepping back into so much of that book here. And this is all taking place in Stephen's mind as he's looking through the telescope, realizing that this guy Goff is aboard the vessel that they're chasing. And he's very certain in that moment that Goff is on a mission to Ireland. And that if the snow is taken, Goff will be hanged, which is a blow against French tyranny. However, The text says Stephen's old loathing for informers rose up with overwhelming force. His utter revulsion from anything and everything to do with them and the results of their betrayals, the torture, the floggings, the melted pitch on men's heads, and of course the hangings. He could not bear the slightest hint of a connection between himself and such people. He could not bear being connected in any way whatsoever with the taking of Goff. Stephen's on sketchy ground here. He's really taken against the idea of being seen even in his own mind as an accessory to the taking of this guy, Goff, even though this person is dislikable and antipathetic to Stephen in some ways. He's getting closer to this this trap, this duality that was part of the undoing of James Dillon all those books ago in Master and Commander, right? Right. I, I mean, this is, I, I was really getting that, uh, you know, danger, Will Robinson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're, yeah. Uh, yeah, Stephen, uh-uh, don't go there. We've seen, we've seen what happens with this. And I think, like you said, Ian, I mean, informers, he's always, and, and he and Dylan had this conversation too. We remember this, you know, oh, you know, a look of an informer. But I think Stephen's always felt like there was a special circle in hell just for them. Yeah. So, Stephen is really revolting against being involved in this. The, the rest of the crew and Jack, pretty much everybody apart from the purser who doesn't know what's going on yet, everybody else is kind of tightening their belly muscles and egging the ship on through this gale of wind. This is a moment for us to kind of stop and reflect. I think this is a moment for us to just just, just pause and look around the horizon and think what else could be going on here. This is probably also a moment for us to take a short break. What do you say, Mike? Oh, I think that's a great idea. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you've all had a chance to get your heart palpitations in place here. I, I don't know, at, at least mine anyways, with this whole Stephen Matron sounding like I'm going down the path of James Dillon thing going on. But yeah. as, as Stephen's in the midst of this, he hears Poolings tell Jack that the, the bow guns are now prepared if Jack would like to take some, you know, some random shots at the prize. And, and Jack says that, you know, he's thought about that, but he really doesn't want to risk it. The ships, both ships are rocking so much. 
and he really doesn't want to batter the prize. And he says, you know, especially with a small prize, it's going to take a long time to repair her, or they might have to send a big prize crew over and then wait for them to get back before they can, you know, leave. So he's thinking, you know, let's just wait. We'll come right up on her. We'll show her our full broadside and boom, you know, she'll surrender. And then we can get, you know, make our way and and not be any later to Lisbon. So Pullings understands, but he also says, you know, okay, I get it. You know, hey, there's really nice moonlight. We're not going to lose her. But if we don't check her speed, you know, we may be beating back all the way across the Irish Sea. And that's going to take a long time. Yeah. And Mike, there's a little notice here. At the very beginning of the chase, they thought that she was bound westwards around the west side of Ireland. We're going up the east side of Ireland. And it's interesting that Pullings has noticed that we're now in a southwesterly wind. We're following a course sort of west-northwesterly up the Irish Sea. The further the surprise goes, the further the chase goes, the deeper they're both going into fairly constrained waters here. And that's a danger that I think we're going to have to think about from a couple of different perspectives. Let's see. Ah, Stephen goes aft. You know, he, he wants some time alone, so he goes to the Orlop. You know, and he believes that that France is not going to try another Ireland landing. You know, whatever Goth's mission is, and so so really that both Goth and this landing are, are not of that great an importance here. No. But he also completely firmly believes that he does not want to be in any way associated with Goth's arrest, and he's trying to think of ways to get out of this situation, and and he just is not coming up with anything. And O'Brien writes. Some great man had said, a thought is like a flash between two dark nights. At present, Stephen's nights were running into one uninterrupted darkness lit by no gleams at all. So I love this quote. It's actually not the entirety of the quote. It's just the part that O'Brien's quoted here. So we're going to come back to this later. But okay. Stephen's kind of, you know, saying, and, and O'Brien tells us that he's he's trying everything. You know, he's doubling up on his cocoa leaves, and they're just of no help whatsoever. <laughs> and then, into the point that you are starting to allude to here, Stephen remembers. Wait a minute, I've got these really strong magnets of Pratt's here. I wonder if I could use them to change the ship's compass so that she thinks she's steering on a course, but actually she's on a different course now. He's not sure exactly how would that work? How would he do it? How much is it going to change it by? And he thinks to himself, gosh, you know, if I get this wrong, the surprise could end up on a rocky shore somewhere. But he pockets this magnet and goes up to the quarterdeck. Yeah. Now, I I was really interested in this, partly for reasons of coincidence that I'll talk about later on. It's certainly possible. Like, it's eminently feasible, especially in a wooden ship for a magnetic body to interfere with the compass. It happens on contemporary ships. It's called magnetic deviation. And you have to be very careful where you design the compass to sit in the vessel so that it's not interfered with by big lumps of other magnetic material. So taking a magnet up to a compass clearly will have an effect. And I think it's absolutely possible that it could have the effect that Stephen is thinking of. I, I bump on this, though, because it's incredibly reckless. I mean, Stephen is spotting that he might be putting the ship into danger, but... If you can alter the course of the ship by 10 or 15 degrees. He noticed already, by the way, in this chapter, that this trip with the magnet will probably only have an effect if they're not also steering by other cues. So it'll only have an effect if it's night or bad weather or bad visibility, at which point they're relying on the compass. And at that point, 
screwing around with the compass is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. If it goes wrong, it could be terminal. Even if, if, if all that happens is Jack finds out that Stephen's been contemplating this. I think Stephen's risking his friendship. He's risking the ship. He's risking the crew. Smoking in a magazine ain't in it, as far as I'm concerned. And I, I, I'm sitting here thinking, is he is he really going to make this kind of risk against the fact that he doesn't like being thought of as an informer? And yeah, this was a moment where I thought, I'm, I'm not sure that the calculation stacks up. Now, as a way of introducing just how much Stephen cares about the different aspects of the Irish Rebellion and a way of introducing the fact that, you know, we're aboard a ship here and a ship is a fragile thing. Like those make perfect storytelling sense. Right. But I'm a little bit worried about really what Stephen's risking here, the way that O'Brien has set him up with this potential trick with the magnets. Now, and we're and we're clearly, you know, we're we're nicely, as you say, Ian, reintroduced to why he hates France so much and why yeah. you know, we had Dylan serving in the English Navy despite his strong feelings, but we see that Stephen, you know, doesn't have that kind of, you know, a little bit of Dylan's negativity there. Right. But he does have some of this leftover stuff and he's on that slippery slope, you know, carrying this magnet up to the deck. I'm, I'm like you, I'm going, is he really going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? So but back on deck, it's as bright as day. And that's good news for those of us who care about navigation and flaky compasses, because that means they can see. And uh, I'm breathing a sigh of relief here. So this means that there's no way for Stephen to experiment with the magnet and the compass. There's no need to try because even if he can get himself surreptitiously close to the compass, they're going to spot that the ship's head is changing versus the landmarks that are in the in the context on the horizon there. The ship is following the chase, not steering with the compass. And Stephen notices that they're just as far behind as they were. West says, well, actually, we are farther behind still, but the tide will change against the wind in an hour. That will make a worse sea state. That'll make it harder sailing for the smaller ship. West says that the captain is updating the chart in his cabin and Stephen contemplates joining Jack and he thinks to himself that maybe I could look at the maps and see how far I could take the surprise off course with this um, compass trick that I'm contemplating. And I'm very relieved to read this, Mike. He decides that that would violate his code of morality. It would be spying, not intelligence gathering. And that's that's a pale beyond which he doesn't want to go. So, huh. His magnets are put to one side for now he heads down the companion ladder and walks along to the waist of the ship instead yeah and, and it's interesting and there's there's this line right before he goes down the companion ladder where as he's been thinking this stuff over in his mind west is saying something to him and he's not paying attention to him and so he he asks again and west says again i was only saying they must be burning heather or furs over there in anglesey I said West pointing to a distant orange serpent on the starboard beam. And and there's this, I kept thinking, why what is this throwaway line here? Why is this? And and I wondered later, you know, we we all know about the serpent <laughs> and, yeah. and kind of Adam and Eve and the serpent. And and I'm kind of wondering if this is Stephen kind of looking on his shoulders, going, you know, who am I taking advice from here? Yeah. Like you said, is it spying? Ooh, that's the serpent. Is it intelligence gathering? No, where's my sense of morality? And, and hoping that, unlike Dylan, you know, don't give in to the dark side, Stephen, here. Yeah, it, it reminds me that there's a, a red sea snake in the water uh, when HMS Surprise is on our way to Bombay in, in, the, in the novel right. HMS Surprise. Yeah, lots of symbolism. I, O'Brien loves an animal symbol, doesn't he? 
Yeah, always. With, with, with color behind it. Oh, That's right. So Bondon sees Stephen and stops to talk with him. He can see that Stephen's upset. He can see that well, maybe he's thinking he might be upset because we haven't caught the prize, or maybe he's upset that Jack hasn't put enough effort into the chase. And he tells Stephen not to worry about this. He says, no captain's going to risk masts, spars, and cordage unless he's fighting against an enemy man of war. And that's not going to happen this early in such a long journey. The surprise has got all the stores aboard for the for this long journey. She can't be driven hard through the water, as you've said already, Mike. This explanation, though, doesn't seem to have cut it with Stephen, and Bonda notices that this isn't helping and decides he's going to kind of back off and give Stephen some alone time to reflect a little bit, which is, for anybody who loves Stephen, I think that's a smart thing right? the majority of times. Right. And probably not a hard vibe to pick up from Stephen. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> now, Stephen continuing to think, and he's not, at least he's picked up kind of one thing from Bond in here, that Jack does not consider the snow of first importance. You know, as Bond said, she's not an enemy man of war, not a national ship. And Stephen starts thinking, well, I wonder if I could just go suggest to Jack that he stop chasing and that we, you know, let's get on back on the road to Lisbon here. This, if this is not that important, but then he realizes who Jack is and who Jack is chasing a prize yeah. and, and O'Brien writes and, uh, you know, about Jack, Stephen thinking about Jack, where his professional duty was concerned, it would be as useful to offer him a bribe as a piece of advice. By the way, that's not a point in favor of bribery. That's a point against giving advice, just in case we're, we're all not sure about that. <laughs> that's right. So, um, and Jack is oblivious to all of these, uh, all this turmoil going on inside Stephen here. He walks past, he says hello to Stephen. He notices that he's wet, um, reminds Stephen that Diana had sent oilskins for him to wear. And he's probably thinking, why the heck have you not got your oilskins on? And invites Stephen to join him, Jack for a mug of broth and toasted cheese. And Mike, this is classic Aubrey and Maturin comfort food here, toasted cheese. Again, a little signal to drop in early in the book here for folks who are joining the canon uh, afresh or anew at this stage. 15 minutes later, Stephen excuses himself to tend to urgent tasks in the all-op. And Jack says, I'm off to sleep and I suggest you do the same. You look, he says, you look quite done up. And that's something coming from Jack. Right. Stephen admits that he's out of order and says he'll prescribe himself a draft. And Mike, I, I have to think, oh, we were just kind of coping with the fact that Stephen's using coca leaves again. And now I'm guessing that the draft is going to be something soporific, like his old laudanum dose. Down in the all-op then, um, Stephen thinks about all the hints he dropped to Jack about other commanders abandoning hypothetical chases, knowing that they were worthless or even worse and wonders whether Jack had caught the hint or had caught his drift. Pretty clearly, Mike, he hadn't. Jack is pretty tone deaf anyhow, and I'm sure Stephen would have been being a little bit subtle and a little bit obtuse here. He now also knows that altering the compass will not likely get the ship wrecked. Well, Stephen, I disagree, but never mind. Will not likely get the ship wrecked, but since they aren't steering by the compass, aha, okay, it will do no good. So they're steering visually right now anyway. He goes up with... You know, no avenues open to him, it seems. He goes back up on deck, paces around. Each new watch that goes by sees him pacing, inventing for himself stories about why he's there. He's worried about the prize. He's got too much money to worry about the small prize. He has a toothache. He's making up all these kind of stories for himself. 
and at five bells in the graveyard watch, which I think, Mike, is 2.30 a.m., he returns to the Orlop, pulls out his laudanum bottle, thinks the only solution is to deal with whatever happens in the minute, decides he needs sleep, and it's best not to be distressed when the time comes. And all that together is his justification to himself for drinking a modest dose of laudanum. Mm. He goes up to his cabin, pulls off his wet clothes, Killick opens the door, hands him a towel and then a dry nightshirt, picks up the wet clothes. I love this from Killick. This great care from Killick. Looks at the doctor sternly, changes his mind about the towel and the nightshirt and says, good night, sir. And this is an, another downer moment for everybody on Team Steven, isn't it, Mike? It, it really is. I mean, you know, oh my gosh, like you said, no, no, we just got him off a laudanum. Now here he is again, and he's getting all these kind of Dylan-like temptations, oh my gosh, to alter course here. And then I love that, you know, Killick, who O'Brien says has no business being awake, is of course awake because the doctor's not in yet. And he's, you know, he takes care of Jack, he takes care of Stephen. And is about to reprimand him in true Killick fashion, but realizes that this guy is really in the midst of it, and he just takes such good care of him there. Well, Killick's now said goodnight to him, and then I love this. I'm, I'm just going to read this the way O'Brien wrote this. Stephen took his rosary from its drawer. Telling beads was as near to superstition as intelligence work was to spying, but although for many years he had thought private prayer, private requests, impertinent and ill-mannered, the more impersonal, almost ejaculatory form seemed to him to have quite another nature. And at this point, a need for explicit piety was strong on him. Yet the warmth of the dry nightshirt on his pale, soaked, shivering body, the ease of the swinging cot once he'd managed to get into it, and the effect of his draft were such that sleep enveloped him entirely before his seventh ave. Oh. I just think this is beautifully realized and beautifully written. Yeah. And a great moment to be right there with Stephen. He is actually getting some, some kind of sucker or some help from this laudanum. And we hate the fact that it's laudanum, but I think we like the fact that he's getting some, some rest and some, uh, you know, some comfort. And it, it's great that he's telling the rosary. We, we've known all along, readers of the canon, that Stephen's a Catholic and that, that Catholicism is tolerated, especially because he's not a commissioned officer. And every now and again, especially in moments of deep personal stress and uncertainty, he's turned to different bits of Catholic ritual. And this is the first time we've heard about him telling the rosary. And the, the, the rosary is the set of prayer beads that old school traditionally raised Catholics, not like myself, <laughs> Would, would follow along with their fingers and saying these prayers by ritual over and over again. So seventh Ave, from distant memory, there are four mysteries. So each has a, the Lord's Prayer and 10 Hail Marys. So he is 70% of the way along the Hail Marys of one of the mysteries, one of the four segments of the rosary, presumably having already prayed to himself the, the creed and the Lord's Prayer and some other kind of opening prayers. So before the seventh Ave, I think he's already quite a long way into his rosary. <laughs> And it's a, it's a really interesting choice from O'Brien as well. It's an odd mixture, the rosary, for Catholics of comfort ritual and outright piety. And depending on who you are and where you were raised, for some people, it, it really just is a physical comfort thing. And for some people, it's absolutely about the, the, the pattern and the process of prayer. And uh, 
I noticed as well, Mike, that he's doing this out of sight in his cabin, privately, n- not in the view of the rest of the ship. And even even though he's well known and loved and tolerated for his Catholicism, I, I think for a Catholic, outwardly visibly, telling the rosary on the deck of a, one of his king's ships in the early 19th century would have raised a few eyebrows. Mm. Hmm. So nice little bit of papist ritual for our Stephen there. We're almost, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really drawn into this, this kind of dark, tender moment here. And I'm with Stephen and I'm kind of nodding off. I'm thinking, yeah, he, you know, eyelids are drooping. Seven Hail Marys in and he can't finish the mystery. He wakes then straight away to the sound of gunfire. There's grey light outside. He hears what sounds like the glass being hosed with water. He dresses and hurries for the companion ladder. Killick catches him and makes him put on what, what we call his long, smelly tarpaulin coat with a hood. A very, very unpleasant thing to put on. Um, Stephen says, where's the captain? Killick's saying, on the forecastle, in the middle of the catastrophe, carrying on like Beelzebub. And you can never be sure with Killick as to whether this is an exaggeration or not. Looking up the ladder, Stephen is, first of all, he encounters rain. It says he's drenched by thick, cold, teeming rain coming down the companionway. Men are all around taking down sails. Awkward Davis sees that it's Stephen and takes him forward in the storm. And this is one of these storms where you really have to hold fast and you need to be lashed on. The squall passes over as Stephen gets to Jack and Pullings and the bosun and some hands standing in the midst of a mess of wreckage of cordage, sailcloth and spars, including, here's the key thing, including the top gallant mast. That's what's come down. And that's clearly wrecked the surprise's ability to control and steer without a four-top gallant mast. Jack leaves the repairs with pullings and says, Stephen, come on, you and me are going back below for coffee. They're in the cabin together, Jack and Stephen. And Jack says, you know, he's made a sad cock of it, as as O'Brien writes. You know, he's allowed the snow, this prize, to run clear. He says, you know, last night Tom suggested that they fire at him and check his speed. And, and this morning now he wished he had done it. He says that when the squall flattened the sea and the wind died on the surprise, that snow, that you know, the chase was pulling away so fast that Jack just decided to risk it all, put everything up and cracked on just to get a shot at her. Said that they were almost in range and, and had, you know, actually fired a shot that had splashed water on her before a backstay parted and the foretop gallant came by the board. And then he says to Stephen, well, now there's, you know, there's no chance of finding the prize again, not in this dirty weather. And and Jack really hopes that Stephen is not too disappointed and i i love o'brien's line oh you know i wish i could say it with that little bit of irish although i know <laughs> on the board some people think Stephen should sound irish and some people think he shouldn't i just love patrick tall sorry you all know that you know he says you know not at all never in life said Stephen, drinking coffee to hide his intense satisfaction and gratitude oh, <laughs> the proper response to answered prayer <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> So interestingly, we've got you know n- nature playing its part here. The storm coming in, we had the threatening foreboding of the red serpent on the horizon before, but all of this seems to have conspired to free Stephen from this James Dillon-like you know torment over chasing this guy Goff. And Mike, maybe we should just go, roll back a few paragraphs earlier on. We had this 
this other other perspective on kind of Stephen's point of view of the world, talking about um, a thought being only a flash between two long nights. And you said that was only part of the quote. Maybe we can dig into that a little bit. Who who was it who said a thought is a flash between two long nights? This is uh, you know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up his name, Henri Poincaré. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Henri. God bless you. I'm <laughs> I'm sorry that. You know, and this is, you know, it's just like O'Brien. This is a French mathematician, theoretical physicist, engineer, philosopher, science, a polymath, like, you know, some of our, like O'Brien himself and others. And, yeah. and in fact, in mathematics, he was called the last universalist. He, you know, he kind of excelled mm-hmm. in every field of the discipline that, you know, at least all the fields that existed in his lifetime. And his full quote is, thought is only a flash between two long nights. That's the part we'd heard before. The end of it is, but this flash is everything. And, and I couldn't help but wondering, you know, if if that's the phrase that O'Brien thought, if you lift up the corner of this rug, if you chase down this Easter egg, that's the piece. This flash is everything. And maybe when we think about the way this story is played out, as you said, that, that that's the difference between Stephen and James Dillon in these very similar situations here. Dillon's is kind of one long night as he tries to run headlong into some thought of, of whatever an honorable death is to ease his conflict. Stephen, in the midst of this same tough situation, exhausts his reason. And then instead of you know running onto somebody's sword, he turns to a little bit of faith, a little self-medication, to the good thought to say, you know, I probably better get some sleep and play this by ear when the moment comes. But he ends up with his honor intact and a decent night's sleep and and thankfully a much better result here. Yeah, well, thank heavens for Poincaré. Interestingly, Mike, O'Brien was careful in the text not to attribute this quote to, to any insight of Stevens or of Jack's. This was kind of the, the author's insight, a famous man once said. And actually, Poincaré, the famous man, wasn't going to say this for another few decades. He wasn't born until April 1854. He came later. Although he was enough of a relativist that, uh, you know, probably we're getting to time of, of parallel timelines now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, true, 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 true. Anyhow, Jack tells Stephen that the price has altered her course eastward, that she's likely going to be hopelessly embayed in the Firth. And I think he means the Firth of Clyde and that they won't get out for weeks and will likely be taken by a British cruiser. And Mike, there's a, there's a really odd bit of lubber's whole coincidence here. You might remember before Christmas, I was uh, working on a job in Sweden and uh, coming up against all these coincidences with where I was and a connection to the, uh, to the end of Letter of Mark. Last week, as I sit here recording this right now, I was on a sailing course in the west of Scotland. I was sailing in the Firth of Clyde as you and I were both reading this and preparing for this. And I'm thinking... Of all the places in the world that I could be that O'Brien is writing about, the Firth of Clyde is very, very, very specific, very unusual for the Aubrey storyline. And what was more interesting was that I was doing a night sailing exercise talking about compass deviation. I was sailing on board a ship that had really, really severe compass deviation to the extent that we had to steer using a hand compass away from the steering compass because on this particular heading, there was a, there was a really big 15-degree deviation. So I was kind of think, sitting there reading this thinking, holy cow, I'm in the Firth of Clyde. And I've been dealing with compass deviation, so, huh, weird, hey? Yeah, the ghost of Stephen was holding his uh, his magnet there <laughs> off the side of your compass, right? Yeah, and interestingly, although Glasgow and Liverpool are great commercial ports, the, the Firth of Clyde, that part of the west of Great Britain, 
was in no way useful as a naval base in the age of sail because once you get in, you can't get out if there's a westerly or a southwesterly and the prevailing winds are all westerly and southwesterly. Wow. These days, since the age of power and in particular nuclear power, the West Coast absolutely is home to one of the UK's most important naval bases. So Faz Lane and Holy Loch, where the UK and formerly the US kept their nuclear submarines are just right there on the Firth of Clyde. And nice. nuclear submarines don't care about the wind. Right. <laughs> so having mentioned this risk of danger of being embayed, of being trapped in the Firth of Clyde here, Stephen wonders if the same thing might apply to the surprise. And Jack says, we've still got plenty of sea room. We can make a very good offing for Lisbon. And remember, that's where they're headed next. Tom Pulling stops by. Jack invites him in for coffee. And Pullings gives this quick report of the status of the ship. He says, thank you, sir. The immediate work is done, and we can hoist jib and four topmast staysail whenever you choose. Jack replies, very good. Very good indeed. The sooner the better. He swallowed his coffee, and the two of them, Jack and Pullings, hurried on deck. A moment later, Stephen, finishing the pot, heard Jack's powerful voice at its strongest. All hands there. All hands about ship. End of chapter two. Wow. Wow. Fascinating, right? Is that, I mean, quite a short little chapter. Some some slightly strange ideas and plot turns being introduced here, but loads of stuff for our characterization, loads of stuff for potentially new readers of the canon joining at this point to get their teeth into. Yeah, it really does make you wonder. I mean, I I, I think, I, I and you and I talked about this a little bit earlier too, in that, you know, it's kind of that, a little bit of that, well, fascinating chapter, but scratching your head going, wonder, you know, why did he have him go up here? Why this whole thing with Stephen? Why this? But to your point, much like a lot of the first chapter, it's really a way of getting somebody quickly up to speed with the characters, with a lot of the past history. Like we said, oh my gosh, you know, if we had just put down Master and Commander, here it is. Here's a lot of that. We don't talk about Dylan, but I guess we, you know, we're there to draw that line. Yeah. Now, I, I do wonder a little bit, though. Okay, is it just kind of reintroducing us to some of that, or are we going to hear more about the United Irishman going forward? Are we going to hear more about this? Okay, I'm back to laudanum now. Uh, it's just, uh, this this worries me just a little bit here. Yeah, we got we got to wonder how many of these things are being planted and just left there and how many of them are being planted to get to get a payoff later right. in the book and like like always with o'brien we don't know there, there'll be some things that are just left kind of standing there um it's going to be fascinating mike we're only two chapters in we we have this long-awaited south american mission that seems fated like we, we first heard about it two three books ago i think right. uh, is it going to be continuously put on hold i mean chasing up the irish sea what the heck right you know? Come on, guys. You've got this South American thing. Stephen's got to go and foment revolution and overturn Bonaparte and the Spanish kingdoms. Are we ever really going to get there? <laughs> we had some new omens at the beginning. In chapter one, we had the the the, uh, the Jonah-like qualities of Standish the Purser falling in the sea. We had Jack pulling the crew together. We had the Orkney men singing about many prizes. But Mike, in, in chapter two, they've been outsailed. They've been eluded. They've failed to catch the prize. They've had bad weather. You know, wh where's their luck now? What about the unlucky purser? Yeah, you know, we have this unlucky purser down below throwing up all over the place while they're losing <laughs> the prize. I'm sure none of this is lost on the crew here. 
So I'm, I'm very much wondering, you know, what's next? What's next? Are we, you know, are we now going to turn and make that good offing for Lisbon or... I don't know. Do we get to Lisbon? Do we get to South America? I guess there's only one way to find out. Mike, what do you say next time to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I would like that of all things. draft were such that sleep enveloped him entirely before his seventh Ave. Before the seventh Ave, I think he's already quite a long way into his rosary.